Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 64 for November 3rd, 2014. On this week's show, growing tiny stomachs in the lab, plant sunscreen, is it okay for us to create super viruses in the lab? And a very cool thing today, we're actually interviewing Dr. Kristen Krukenberg. She is the co-founder of Futures of Research and a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University. And uh, she's going to talk to us about her um, about this organization they've created for for postdocs. It's actually very cool. So, with that, today it's another uh, very special episode with it's uh, just Carolina and us. But uh, but I, I I feel I feel this is a good thing. I like this. Carolina, hey hey, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. It's, here. Not, it's not just you, Scott. I promise. <laughs> My imaginary friend Carolina, uh, Carolina Balkenbush is a registered dietitian out of. Las Vegas, Nevada, but she is currently in the great city of Austin, Texas. And it sure is weird out here. I'm loving it, especially <laughs> Halloween weekend. There now, are a lot of crazy. The whole Keep Austin Weird thing, I, I feel like they hijacked that from Portland because isn't Keep Portland Weird has been a thing for like yeah. 50 years, hasn't it? Yes. And you know, I've been to Portland and this is my first time to Austin, but I've got to say like Austin has out Portlanded Portland. It is even weirder here. Really, I'm I'm in, I'm intrigued. Well, they certainly have them out barbecued. Yeah. Well, okay. So, in the morning yesterday, it was like 9 a.m. We were walking down the street. It's you know the morning after Halloween. Everything's quiet, and a guy in an 18 wheeler drives by and starts yelling, "Woo! I'm ready to party!" <laughs> this is nine in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Solid. Hey, he's he's start. He's got a little barbecue in its stomach. He's starting his day early. All that fun stuff. I went yep. to um, only time I've been to Austin was two years ago. I went there for a Formula One race, uh, and everyone always talks about the barbecue, right? I mean, this, you, people won't shut up about it. And um, I'd never really been a brisket guy, but then they're like, "You got to get the brisket." Go to, and there's a little hole in the wall places that don't look like they'd be good. The place we went to was actually attached to a gas station. Like, no kidding. But it got like five stars on Yelp or whatever it was. Get in there, and they say that you know you got to get the brisket. You get it, and it's transcendent. Like you, I don't know why other people across the country can't make it like that. It's not like like you know you need the proper humidity. We're not making Stradivarius violins here. You know. Um, so, but it's so perfect. by next week, I will certainly be a changed woman after I try that brisket. <laughs> I was reading the Yelp reviews. They say that Franklin Barbecue sells this meat flavored butter and they call it brisket, which <laughs> sounds like a fantastic description. <laughs> and that, it's not so bad if you just eat butter now. You're like, I'm, I'm eating brisket. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do anything for Halloween? Um, we, well, we went down to 6th Street, which is where all the craziness happens. We, we only lasted about an hour because it was pretty insane. But we sat up on a rooftop and watched from above as crazy people walked, walked around down below. How about you? Uh, we just handed out candy to the kids, but last weekend we went to a thing, and it's been years since I've dressed up. The last time I dressed up was as Steve Zissou, um, from The Life Aquatic, to give you an idea. And, nice. uh... And but we did. I saw something online that we ended up replicating, which was, uh, you know, Bob Ross, uh, the the PBS painter with yeah. the big hair. Oh, pretty little trees. We got a. One, well, one of our trees. bartenders was actually dressed up as Bob Ross here. Ah. <laughs> so not only was well, I was Bob Ross naturally, and Dharma was the painting. So we cut out a hole in a painting, 
put her face through it, then painted the painting back over her face. Ah, so she was genius. she was the easel painting canvas thing, and I was Bob Ross, and we were quite the hit, I'll tell you. Very Except good. she kept bumping into everything because she's got a three-foot canvas <laughs> strapped to her head. It was funny. So. Oh, I hope you took lots of pictures. You should, oh, you should probably plenty. post that on the podcast. I will I post it all. I, I think I science lovers would be interested in seeing that. Indeed. A little art so. appreciation. Uh, before we get moving on here, I just uh, I, I've, I've told people in the past, if you write us, if you say nice things about us, we will let the people know about you. And that's exactly what that's exactly what happened. Uh, listener Trinda in Seattle, actually a student at the University of Washington, wrote, "Hi Scott, Dale, Christian, and Caroline. I'm a fairly new listener. I listen to one episode every day as I'm working out. I love your podcast. The energy, the wise ass cracks, the jokes. It's all the best science. I'm a student in neurobi- neurobiology at the Department of." Um, Excuse me, I'm, I'm all over myself. I'm a student in neurobiology department at the University of Washington. And I'm spreading the word of your podcast to science geeks around campus. Thank you for the stupendous show. I'm just glowing. As I've said, that, yeah. is, that is the fuel in our tanks. That's what gets us going. So rate us on iTunes, send us flowery emails, and we will we will love you back. Thank you, Chris, uh, Tris, Trinda. So, yes, thank you very much. Very, very kind words. It is. I, though I, my head explodes. If I had to listen to myself for an hour every day, I would probably end up with a bullet in my head about two weeks <laughs> in. So uh, uh, all the more power for uh, for listening to an episode every day. So although I found that a lot of people who write in, they they do um, people binge listen. That's kind of the thing to do. So binge hmm. away. Not bad for your health. All right. Well, moving into science. I think we will move into science. As a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> Let's move on to science blast. Science blast. Pew pew pew. We're just going through the motions. I am. I'm behaving very well today. We're just keeping this this train on the tracks. We are. You are. You are a master scheduler, and we are doing such things. So. Um, Man, we got a couple different things here to cover, so I'll go ahead and start off with a funny one. Uh, this was sent in by listener Aaron Miller, uh, who was actually on the show one time, uh, and we're actually going to have him back. Uh, he's a he's a patent law lawyer, <laughs> patent law lawyer. That sounds funny. He does study. He does patent law in uh, on the East Coast, and he was going to come in and talk to us about uh, about how that all works within science, and uh, I think it'd be really interesting. But he sent us this article. It was basically about the serendipity of of artificial sweeteners and how they were, um, how they were they were found by accident essentially here. And um, this is an article from the Atlantic, and uh, I'll only go over a couple of them here, but it, it's pretty shocking. So saccharin, which you know a lot of these artificial sweeteners are getting panned uh, pretty hard by science and the press, and saccharin no doubt is one of them. And and essentially what he did was um, there was a man by the name of Constantine Falberg and. He came home from the lab one night. This is back in 1897. He picked up a piece of bread and took a bite. And he's like, this tastes very sweet, much sweeter than even sugar. And um, he was like, that's amazing. I got to find out what this was. So being a good scientist, he went in to the lab the next day. And he literally tasted every single chemical he had used the day prior. Every chemical. (laughs) And and he finally found out which one it was uh, after tasting a couple dozen different chemicals and uh and then in order to figure out if it was safe because uh this is before the fda and all that he took 10 grams of this chemical that he had made swallowed it waited 24 hours to see if he got sick 
and then decided it was okay to eat because he didn't get sick after that. So um, go science, huh? <laughs> that's that's a fast track science back in the day. There was no uh, mutant rats or, or mice that you had to make, no knockouts and, and uh, no long-term studies to see if they caused cancer. He just tasted 10 grams. So, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wonder how often that still happens now just in secret and then they go through the motions and say oh yeah yeah right right they're like oh i guess yeah i gotta show some research behind this but i'm pretty sure i mean well so much of science starts with anecdotes you know it doesn't it doesn't uh go crazy that way so um the uh the other one uh was a cyclamate which you probably haven't heard of because it was banned in 1969 after it was found to cause cancer in rats but a similar story Started. I was a someone was a, a doctoral student, uh, Michael uh, Svita, and he t- started taking up smoking, which is understandable if you've gone to uh, if you've gone to graduate school. And um, he basically touched some of his tobacco, whatever you call it, tobacco that he's going to put in his pipe, and uh, smoked it, and uh, thought that the tobacco tasted very sweet. And uh, he realized he'd found another artificial sweetener. So this happens all the time. Same story with the aspartame. Um, and and uh, and I guess yeah, this probably does happen fairly often. I always worry. Like I remember when I was an undergraduate and I was taking like general chemistry, and they were explaining that cyanide gas, which is basically one of the most deadly gases on the planet, they say it smells like almonds. And I'm like, who's the poor sob that found that out? You know, because if you realize you're smelling something that smells like almonds, you're probably going to be dead in five minutes. You know. <laughs> I, yep. Yeah. And that also, like, recently, people don't know this, but until very recently, I would say 15, 20 years ago, like, it was super, super common for, uh, rather than using pipettes to transfer fluid between flasks, if you had small volumes that you needed to transfer, they just took surgical tubing with a little, like, glass pipette at the end, and they would suck up into what essentially is the world's worst straw, um, whatever chemical they wanted, then they would blow it into the next thing. Uh, that was a, a completely accepted scientific practice to transfer that. And imagine doing that with dangerous, volatile liquids for decades. It's it's not shocking that a lot of chemists got weird cancers, you know? Yeah. So, good times. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> What are the chances that what you ch- discover multiple sweeteners that way? Indeed. So, uh, what about uh, what about you? Okay. So, I was I was looking this up last night, um, and I saw that there's an article published in Nature this week on October 29th. Uh, this research comes from the Department of Developmental Biology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Kyle McCracken and his team were able to grow tiny human stomachs uh, in a, in the lab from uh, basically using stem cells, and they guided the stem cells through the stages of development seen in an embryo. Uh, and so they they call these flexible cells. They call um, pluripotent, meaning that they can turn into any one of the 220 cell, cell types in the body. Um, and in the past, researchers have been able to grow bits of kidney tissue, liver tissue, um, uh, brain, and intestine. And this is the first time they've been able to grow uh, what they call gastric organi- organoids, which are teeny tiny stomachs about the size of a sesame seed. Uh, the way that they're, they're able to get the stem cells to develop into stomach tissue is um, at certain points in time of growing the cells, they expose the cells to different um, environmental factors, different signals. So in the case of stomach cells, what they do is at day three, they expose them to retinoic acid, which is a compound in vitamin A, uh, and also a protein called noggin, which uh, suppresses the development of the cells into other 
GI tissues, um, huh. like certain other portions of the stomach or into the intestines. So it takes only about 34 days to grow a sesame seed-sized little stomach. And I guess calling it a stomach isn't really accurate. It really is more of like a gastric organoid because it, it lacks certain things that a real stomach would have. It has the same glands. Uh, well, it has a very similar gland structure to a human stomach. Uh, it actually does have gut bacteria in it. Oh, cool. Which is very neat. But it doesn't have any blood cells or immune cells. Uh, it doesn't have the ability to process food and it doesn't secrete bile. So what they did with these teeny tiny little uh, stomach organoids is they exposed them to Helicobacter pylori, which is a bacterium that can cause ulcers and stomach cancer in human stomachs. And within 24 hours, the H. pylori caused the organoids to divide twice as fast and also activated a gene called CMET that causes um, that can cause cancers. Uh, this is the, the replicating twice as fast and the cancer-causing effect are the same that's seen when H. pylori is exposed to the, the human stomach. So this is a so, great analog model to kind of study this cancer, right? Yeah, it definitely is. And so basically the plan for the researchers is to develop thousands of different little organoids from different people's cells and infect them with different kinds of pathogens so that way they can study the effect of individual genetics on the um, pathogenicity Um of different things and then they're also hoping to grow personal stomach tissue that, that then can be used to patch up holes from ulcers in human stomachs so if you are infected with h pylori you have these bad ulcers they can patch it up using your own little personalized organoid tissue so they're in the process of testing out this tissue on mouse stomachs right now huh. that was really cool yeah well i mean so much like so typically when we study, there's, there's two ways that in a lab where you would study these, these types of diseases. One is you just work with a, a cell line where you, you, you just have individual cells in vitro and you, you, you can knock genes out, you can add stuff. And it's certainly useful, but it, it's not going to probably help you get to an end state. You have to do larger type of studies. And then we also will create, create like knockout mice or knock-in mice where we are, we're adding or taking away genes from mice models themselves, which are much more useful. But again, it's a mouse and it's not a human model. This seems to really split the difference quite nicely where you have, you have a, a, a semi-functioning organ using, um, using real cells that you can so it's much better than just using the individual cells and 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 you can do some pretty crazy stuff to it to, te to test it and you kind of and you don't have you don't have the expensive animals you don't have the time put into maintaining and 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 uh and and take care of animals and and all the everything dealing with that you kind of just have your organ i think this is pretty cool yeah, yeah. And one thing I forgot to mention, too, is they were able to grow these organoids two different ways. They were able to use embryonic stem cells, which is fairly controversial. Um, it can be an ethical issue because using embryonic stem cells requires destroying the stem cells. And it's a huge legal issue right now. Um, As we all know, yeah. But yep. It started with Bush because they, uh, they put a moratorium on funding. Uh, yeah. government funding of stem cell research. I think some of that's been oh, it been put back, but I don't really do stem cells, so I, I'm, I'm not up on that right now. Yeah, I read a little bit about it. I know it, it kind of started in 1996 with the, I think it's called the Dickey-Wicker um, Amendment uh, that put 
put a bit of a stop on stem cell research and then Bush made it even more restrictive. And then Obama tried to take the restrictions off, but they're still waiting on a Supreme Court ruling on the whole issue. So I know a lot of uh, stem cell researchers are sort of biting their nails in this whole process. But the good news is they were also able to grow these little organoids using skin cells that were induced into pluripotency. So that's kind of a cool thing that stem cell researchers are able to do now. They're able to use adult stem cells, which don't come from the embryo. And typically adult stem cells can't be turned into as many different tissue types. Usually they can only turn into a very limited number uh, from the part of the body that they were taken. Right. But there's a way to induce it into pluripotency and make them completely plastic and flexible, as flexible as embryonic stem cells. So they were able to grow these organoids that way as well. Uh huh. Um, yeah, the the whole adult drive stem cell thing is really interesting and made huge, uh, you know, um, advances in, in in them. But again, like you said, they're not quite as useful as the um, embryonic. But uh, but hey. Yeah, but you know, and, and okay. So so I just have a question. I kind of want your opinion on this. I get that it's an ethical issue, but I don't really understand why. Because like, let's say you're going to go through in vitro fertilization. And you're going to use some of those uh, embryos or an embryo, I guess, uh, maybe freeze some. It, you know, even if you're using them to get pregnant, what are you going to do with the rest? You well, know, that's always I, been the argument. See it, Please right, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, so you either freeze them and use them later, but there's no way you're going to have that many babies. You know, how, how many embryos do you typically create? through in vitro fertilization. I, mean, I would think at least a dozen, right? Uh, that's on the high end, but you can okay. create a bunch. Um, yeah, and that's always been the argument was that this is not, um, you're not taking a child away from someone. You're you're taking, um, you're taking essentially something that was never going to be life. Um, and and you're, you're, rather than what they what would essentially I mean is a crude way to say it be throwing them out that's that's this mm-hmm. is what is typically done you just they 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 kill the cells and and then it's never used for anything so it's it's scientists are always trying to ex- explain and you know that fact that it's like well we're not doing anything that wasn't going to be done anyways but I guess people feel that's the slippery slope thing and then next thing yeah. you'll be killing four-year-olds for their cells you know what I mean people always take it to some extreme and from a religious aspect some people are like life starts at conception when that egg and sperm get together it's a life you got to treat it and so that's it's a it's a it's a moral it's a moral stance for an individual versus a a practical you know, scientific stance. And you can if that's someone's emotional or, or I should say moral or, or religious stance on it, you're, you're not changing anyone's mind. That's just how they feel, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's just, it's just surprising to me because I do see a lot of Christians who go through in vitro fertilization. I don't know if they don't like think through that whole process or they're unaware um, of what's going to happen to those. They really, know, they really want a over. child. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's how we do it now. That's, that's just the fact. So, yep. Um, well, shoot, uh, it, I think it's, we'll go ahead and move on to our, our interview right now with Dr. Kristen Kuchenberg, or Kuchenberg, excuse me, and, and then we'll, if uh, time permitting, we'll go, I got a couple more stories, we can go over them if we have time, if not, we'll, we won't. All right, I have on the line with us Dr. Kristen Kruckenberg. She's a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School, and she's actually the co-founder of an organization called Futures of Research. Thanks for coming on to the show, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so... Um, well, geez, a little bit about you. So you are currently a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School, and I always like to know what kind of the research people do. And, and from my, my brief uh, Googling of you, uh, you study HSP-90. Is that still accurate? So that was what I did as a graduate student. Okay. Um, 
So I had a bit of a shift as a postdoc. So I'm now working on a protein called polyADP ribose polymerase. So it's say that ten times fast, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's better known as PARP, just because it's a lot easier to say. Okay. Um, so what it, it catalyzes this sort of strange post-translational modification that's been best understood in um, cases of DNA damage. So it helps recruit DNA damage sort of repair machinery to sites of DNA damage. But it seems to have a lot of other really interesting functions. It's sort of a hot new target in cancer therapies, and but we really don't understand it. So I'm doing a lot of sort of biochemistry and cell biology work to try to figure out what it's actually doing. Wow. So is this is this PARP or uh, is this in, is this the post-translational modification or it's associated with with certain post-translational modifications? So it um, PARP makes a post-translational modification called polyADP ribose. Okay. So it basically adds these sort of so it's ADP ribose, which looks a little bit like DNA and a little bit like a sugar. Uh huh. And so it adds these onto proteins. Is uh, because of the ribose? Is it very labile, or does it degrade quickly? Um. So it on its own it doesn't, but there are classes of enzymes that degrade it. So it is a sort of fairly quick reversible modification. That's super super fascinating. Wow. Um. So why well, shoot before we get too deep into the the science and all this fun stuff here. I guess um, one of the reasons we had you on here is because I saw an article in the Boston Globe that was called, uh, the title was, it's very grabby, whoever the headline writer is needs a promotion because I immediately had to read it. It was called Glut of Postdoc Researchers Stirs Quiet Crisis in Science. And being a graduate student, I was like, huh, this looks interesting. Perhaps uh, I should read this article here. And the article was essentially saying, to which you were interviewed in this article, and that's how I found you, was that you know there are so many more postdocs out there right now than we actually need, and it's causing this this imbalance um, uh, in the kind of postdoctoral seating area that we that we have uh, before you go off into a faculty position, and and it's a problem, and so. As probably as all of our listeners are no doubt aware that you know after you get your bachelor's degree, some of us spend four to eight years getting our PhD. But most people are not at all familiar with the fact that after you get your PhD, there is this whole other world that you have to go into, and it's called the postdoc. So you're you're deep into this. You've been doing it for five years. So can you kind of explain what a what a postdoc does and in in why we have this job? Sure. So a postdoc, I think it was originally sort of thought of as an additional training period. So for people who want to become professors or run research groups, it was a, a period where they could sort of try some, some science or learn some techniques outside of what they did for their PhD, and also to sort of learn how to work independently and kind of how would they run a lab and the sorts of science they'd want to do if they had their own group. So kind um, of the, the training wheels for uh, uh, for for. Because as a student, you're really just looking after yourself or maybe a couple undergraduates. This is to get you to to be a, a fully functioning research laboratory scientist. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Um, yeah, because I guess a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they, they hear PhD, and especially if you haven't gotten a PhD, they assume that you're just, oh, you know everything about science. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that you know a lot about the tiny sliver of science and you're very very good at that sliver but the fact is you don't know a lot of other things so i guess that postdoc is to get you more broadened uh, right and- so it's a, a chance to learn something new try a different area gain some outside expertise right and so i guess why do you think someone would go like 
so you'd mentioned academia. So that's really a postdoc is primarily for people staying in academia, or do people who go into go into industry? If you want to work for a big uh, a big pharmaceutical company or something, um, would you also be doing a postdoc? Uh, yes, actually. So more and more people who also go into industry do postdocs. A lot of companies have their own postdoc programs, so you can do an industry postdoc basically. Um, so I think it used to be primarily people who wanted to have an academic position, but I think that's changing. And now, you know, industry academic positions, a lot of these are looking for people who've done postdocs as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess from this article, and it's something that you don't hear a lot about outside of our small community, they're saying that we're all of a sudden building up to have this massive overflow of, of postdocs. Like, do you know how we got to this place? Or, or I mean, how, how this happened, do you know? So I think at least, so biomedical sciences, which is mostly what I'm familiar with, a lot of people point to, and I would tend to agree with the period, when was that? The doubling of the NIH budget, like late 90s, early 2000s, something right. like that. And so a lot of people point to that where there was this sort of huge influx of money and grants were a lot easier to get. And everyone had this idea that the NIH's budget was going to continue to double and grow by sort of leaps and bounds. And so labs got a lot bigger. People could hire a lot of people. And it seems that that's sort of that trend in, is continuing in terms of number of graduate students are continuing to increase, number of postdocs presumably is increasing, although we don't have great numbers. Um, but the problem is the NIH budget, as everyone knows, is not doubling. It actually seems to be going the opposite direction. It is. As a matter of fact, I um, the ASBMB, it's the, uh, for our listeners, it's the uh, American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Uh, we mentioned it briefly in the show. They actually flew me out and some other uh, graduate students and postdocs to speak to members of Congress about a month ago. Uh, trying to erase their awareness about the lack of funding and, and how it's the real purchasing power of the NIH, even though the budget's been largely flat, it's been going down because of inflation. And and we're such a small part of the budget that these most of these uh, uh, these these politicians, they're not really it's not even on their radar. It's 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 30 billion dollars about um, which seems like a lot of money. But as far as the the entire national budget, it's it's a drop in the bucket. And and they're just, you know, it's not that big of a deal to them. They don't, I think the part of the problem is, is they don't, they don't, especially with basic science research, they don't understand how studying fruit flies is going to give them a, a drug to treat their cancer in 15 years. And by kind of chopping down the funding now, it's ultimately going to lead to the fact that, that we're not going to be making these huge advances down the road. And, and as you said, this has been happening for, geez, since the early 2000s, we've got that huge influx of money. And now, now it's now it's not there, and uh, and so you think that because we had all that money in the early late '90s, early 2000s, it created this huge influx of scientists, and now we're now we're at a place with lots of scientists and no no money. I think that's definitely part of it. Um, there may be other factors at play. One thing, sort of, in starting to look at all these issues, is you start to realize how interconnected all of these things are, and it's sometimes hard to tease out the cause and effects of different different aspects. Yeah. But but yeah, no, I think. Um, in some ways, we haven't caught up, like the workforce hasn't caught up with the lack of funding. Um, and then I think also people are not always very aware going into graduate school of the situation. So people go into graduate school thinking, oh, well, I'm going to go on and become a professor. And they don't have a great sense of sort of the reality of the situation. 
Uh, well, I, I could speak personally to that, which is, you know, I left my undergraduate. I got an, my undergraduate in biochemistry, and I'm, I fell in love with research scientists. And you kind of make this assumption, I think the general population does too, is, well, you're getting your PhD. You're going to be fine. You're, you know what I mean? Like, you can go where you want. You can go teach. You can do whatever. But, but th- those options really are limited. And it's not really something a young person going into graduate school often thinks about. And it's not even something they get mentored about. It's just kind of, oh, yeah, you want to go get your PhD? Go find a lab. And, and that's just the reality of the situation. Right. And I mean, I do think that there's there's a lot of value to having a PhD apart from doing research. And many, many career trajectories would, you know, appreciate having people with PhDs in them. But as you said, people who go into PhDs, they aren't educated about the different options or that they should maybe think about other careers besides just be doing research in an academic lab. Yeah. And well, and as far as the actually labs go, you were part of uh, an open letter that was written. Um, yeah, it was it was titled an open letter to uh, AAAS uh, Journal Science. Postdocs need to address the futures of research. Um, so in that you wrote the or you were part of a group that wrote this, and I found this very, very intriguing. So this is this is from the, the open letter. There is a clear need for good mentorship and a reduction in the reliance upon cheap labor in the form of highly qualified trainees on short-term contracts with little to no employment benefits. Principal investigators often refuse to consider alternative careers to academia for trainees and push for academia or nothing. And, you know, so do you feel that... It's a pretty strongly worded uh, sentence there, or I should say quote there. Do you feel PIs are taking advantage of postdocs, um, or is there is there something else going on here? Is it just is it just become the status quo? I think it's a little of both. I think there are probably some PIs who really do take advantage of the system, although that's probably a small number. I think a lot of PIs, it happens probably without their meaning to, um, just in the way the system's set up. So like when, so postdocs and graduate students are typically often paid off of a PI's research grants. Right. And those have limited amounts of money. And so it's cheaper to have graduate students and postdocs than to hire, say, a staff scientist. Which is probably have- twice as much uh, initially, because I guess, you know, you're, you start out as a postdoc, uh, you're kind of NIH limited, if I if I understand this properly, if you're taking grant money to forty two thousand dollars a year, and if you've just spent eight years getting a PhD, that's kind of a gut check for some people, I would imagine, especially if you have student loans to repay. Yeah, well, and it's it's not that they're limited, so PIs could pay their postdocs more, but those what's what the NIH set is sort of the minimum that they should pay. But most people use that as sort of this is what the standard payment for postdocs should be. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was a I was considered a minimum because I've never known anyone who started out with more than that. So uh, there's of... there's a few like private fellowships and things that will pay postdocs more, but most cases it's it's yeah the minimum is used as what the actual salary is. So do you feel that part of like so assuming that the PIs are not willfully taking advantage of the system? Do you think part of the problem is is that if you're doing a postdoc and you want to stay in academia because the NIH funding has gone down so much, there's just not the faculty positions open, so we're kind of stuck in this holding pattern? Yes, I think that's part of it. Um, there are some statistics that have come out, and I'm not going to get the numbers quite right, but people have looked at sort of the number of people with PhDs or the percentage of PhDs who end up in faculty positions, and it's on the order of 10%. Jeez, um, I didn't know it was that low. Yeah, it's pretty low. So, I mean, give or take probably 5%. Um, 
But so it's actually pretty low, and I think some of it is we don't know how much of that is because people decide they want to do other career options so that they they um, decide to go in a different direction versus people who just can't find jobs. Um, I mean, the unemployment for people with PhDs is pretty low, so they're finding some sort of work. It just may not be where they want something. to be. Right. Exactly, and I think so. Henry Sourman has some some. He's a economist at Georgia Tech. And he has some interesting studies where he's looked at sort of the career choices people want. So coming into graduate school, how many people want to have a, a faculty position? And by the end of graduate school, how many people still want to have a faculty position? And he still finds it's on the order of like 50% of, of graduates still hope to get a faculty position. Well, and you'd kind of mentioned this in, the, in that, in that uh, passage I read from the, from the open letter is that fa- or PIs are pushing for this academia or nothing model. Do you think that's like a... A willful thing, or is it just uh, happens to be that's the trajectory they follow generally, and they don't really have much knowledge outside of that? You know. Yeah, I think it's it's largely the last part. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because I do think it's it's partially like you said, faculty members they've only known this so, and they came up in depending on how long the faculty members been around, they came up in a very different system where it was that you could do a postdoc and then you were reasonably assured to get a, a faculty position. And I think some advisors have not caught up with the current situation, that that's no longer the case. Right. Um, and I think in some places there's definitely, like you, you hear from people that there's this sort of stigma if they talk to their faculty advisor about wanting to do something other than becoming a faculty member, they feel like they're somehow disappointing their advisor or that there's this sort of stigma that they're, you know, they're opting out or they're giving up. Yeah, I even see almost this, like, you're, you're, some people almost have this feeling like they're selling out, like, um, which is, it's odd to me because you've been trained and, and you should go where, where your kind of heart takes you, but it's this, oh, well, you, so you just want to go make a lot of money and you want to do, you know what I mean? And it's like, you're, you're not in it for the pure idea sharing of academia you're going to go create great things and then hold on to that your company's not going to share the information this is in in there's this this kind of stay 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 with the 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 cool kids who who are altruistic you know what i mean yeah yeah which Uh, yeah i think it's misguided and i think people are starting to realize and it's becoming more a part of the conversation that getting an academic position is now the alternative career yeah (laughs) yeah um and so I guess from from what I've seen too is that you know maybe this is maybe a little cynical or pragmatic if you're you're looking at it differently is that you know the most successful uh, postdocs that I've seen that I know are the ones that put out a lot of papers and more importantly they're the ones who are getting the grants. Uh, that's what if you want to survive in science you, you need or in, in the public side you need to get grants and with the NIH pay lane. Uh, pay line right now, it's hovering around 10% uh, for the actual pay, a little more depending on what you're looking at, but it's still really, really low. And the question is, is like, are we, are we poisoning our own pool here with this current model? Or perhaps maybe all those, that huge influx of people that we got with that funding, maybe we're just weeding kind of people out that, that can't quite cut the mustard. I don't know. Where, where do you fall on that? Uh, probably that we're losing a lot of good people. So, yes, some competition is probably good for science. Um, how much competition is always a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, go ahead. But I do think that with the pay lines being as low as they are, and also 
there's a there's a lot of sort of debate and argument about how grants are funded if they're and if they're really being given to the people who are going to end up doing the best science and the most innovative science. And I think often we don't know ahead of time what science is going to lead to the big breakthroughs 10, 15 years down the line. And so we may very well be losing a lot of those people who could have these amazing ideas or they have better options because they're smart and very talented and so they decide to take a different path that's a bit less challenging. Right, right. Or I guess, you know, if to be optimistic about it, maybe these people who are opting to leave academia because the funding is so low, maybe we're inadvertently seeding a new population of people that will do great things outside of academia. Maybe there is some unanticipated benefit that might come out of it. But we, like you said, we won't know for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. yeah I think bad. that's the big challenge with trying to come up with ideas of how we might want to change the system is also trying to think about, well, if we make this small change, what kind of ripple effects will that have? And are we just going to make things worse or will we hopefully make things better? Right. Well, most people, yes, but you're like, such as me and other postdocs, I know we're kind of on the sidelines, hoping that uh, hoping that the situation will rectify itself, and in, and in, in passively just observing this uh, with little we can do. But you and your co-founder Jessica Polka, actually, who's also at Harvard Medical School, I believe, um, mm-hmm. you guys decided to take a more proactive approach to this and figure out what you can do. And you created a group called Futures of Research. Uh, can you kind of tell us what that's all about? Sure. So this was a group that it came out of just some conversations among among postdocs through a group at Harvard Medical School where we just we talk about various issues related to being a postdoc. And we sort of realized that there's a lot of conversation about these issues going on at sort of higher levels and from people who are in sort of more positions of power. Um, And we sort of it was interesting to hear that postdocs were actually quite passionate about these issues and wanted to to be a part of the conversation. And so this led to a a group of postdocs from around Boston. We all got together and decided that we should try to come up with a way for postdocs to have their voices heard in this discussion so that the decisions that will probably ultimately affect us the most are not being made by other people, but that we also have a say in what some of these decisions will be. Uh, To your point, to that point, you know, there is this kind of the old school, the the people who have been doing this for a long time. Like they are the ones that are in these positions of power, and there's probably not a lot of benefit for them to completely shake the can and rattle things up because they've spent a lot of time working that system and getting to a good point. And I'm not not to be cynical. I'm not saying that they're bad people or they they don't care about postdocs or anything like that. But they it, it's 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 critical that the people who are most affected to this, which are the graduate students and postdocs right now, to to, to have a, a megaphone to get their voice out there. And, and that's essentially what you guys are doing. Exactly. Yeah. And you guys had a, um, you guys had a, a, a meeting about a month ago, right? Was this your inaugural meeting? Yes. So this was our first meeting. Um, hopefully it will be the first of, of multiple meetings. Um, yeah. So we had, it was about a day and a half. We had panel speakers. So some of the sort of people who've been thinking about these issues and have been fairly vocal, um, including Henry Bourne was one of our keynote speakers. He has a great blog about a lot of these issues. Um, and so, and we had panels and discussions. And then part of it was also we had these workshops, which the idea of the workshops were to bring postdocs or other young scientists together, so graduate students as well, to actually for us to discuss some of the issues and come up with some of our thoughts on what the issues are and possible solutions to those issues. 
Now, you guys are, um, I believe, the the website. Uh, and can you give the name of that website out? Oh, yes. So it's uh, futureofresearch.org. Futureofresearch.org. And we'll put a link to that on our, our website if you want to go there. They've got some really great information on there. And I believe you said that you guys are going to put out a um, kind of a, a paper on, on the talking points or at least what came out of that. Are you guys working on that right now? Yeah, so we're working on that right now, trying to get sort of the final polishing on the draft. And hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll be publishing it on F1000 Research. Now, are, when you, is that, the findings from this, are, are these more just broad scope uh, uh, directions or are there actual action items? Like what, what, what can we expect to see out of this? So it's, it's kind of a range where for most of the workshops, we can sort of break it down into... Um, things that individual postdocs can do, for example. So ways to like advocate for yourself or try to, you know, gain training and different career options, things like this, as well as some sort of larger ideas that would be something that the NIH would have to be on board with to, to see changing. Um, so we have a kind of a whole range of, of suggestions. And some of it, I think, will also just be that these are complicated issues, and for some of these, we just need more transparency in terms of the information that's out there to be able to come up with better solutions. Uh, so if you're in graduate school, you're a postdoc, this would actually be really valuable to you because, like you said, some of the it's not just these higher-level uh, policy-type issues. They're actual practical, this is what you might want to consider doing to make yourself more marketable in whatever direction you end up going. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Well, I look forward to that. Um, so in a perfect world, I mean, what, where do you see futures of research are, uh, going? Where, where would you like, is there an end state for you guys or, or is this going to just be ongoing? I think it's going to be ongoing because I, I think the nature of, of science and the way it's done is it's going to need to be sort of an ongoing conversation of how science, how we can best do science um, given the workforce that we have and in a way that's it's good for the workforce as well, that we're not just sort of using people. Um, but also how that adapts to sort of changes in funding and changes in government or changes in new technology, all of these kinds of things. So we're actually currently working on, um, we have a few members who are kind of spearheading efforts to make Future of Research into a nonprofit organization so that we can sort of continue these discussions, have more regular meetings about some of these topics as well as other topics such as like reproducibility in science or the way publishing is done a lot of these these things that are, I think are constantly evolving in the scientific field. Absolutely, and um, and if again, I just want to say it. Uh, if you if you want to find more about this, go to futureofresearch.org. And uh, and do you have a you, I'm, do you have a specific date when you're putting those findings out, or or is it just going to be in the next few weeks? It should be in the next few weeks. We don't have a final date figured out quite yet. Well, uh, to our listeners, uh, when they do actually put that out, uh, I'm eagerly awaiting it, and I will make sure to tell you guys. So, um, yes. and we'll put a link out there. So, so and we'll be sorry. announcing it on the website because we're also putting it up to um, get comments from other people because we really do want input from people nationwide since this is an issue an issue that affects all of us. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, great. So I guess we have a lot of listeners who are, are either undergraduates, a lot of graduate students, and actually several uh, postdocs that listen to this as well. And if you were to give advice to graduate students, uh, or I should say students at all in the molecular biosciences, where would you, uh, what would, being a postdoc, trans uh, you're transitioning to a faculty position, what, is there any nuggets you would like to give us to, to push us on the right path? I'd say it's, never too early to start thinking about 
what you want to do with your career. So I think as a graduate student, it's good to start thinking about, do you really want to become a research fellow or do you be, what are your strengths and what are your passions and what career choice best fits those, those passions. And then to really talk to people from those areas. So talk to people in industry, talk to people in academia, talk to people who do science policy or science writing and figure out sort of what are the areas you want to do. And then from talking to them, figure out, okay, these are the, the skills I need to learn apart from doing research. Because there's a lot of skills we need in terms of leadership or management, writing, giving presentations. So in a lot of those things, it's, it's good to start on earlier rather than later. You bring up a really important point, which is something I'm learning now. I'm in my fourth year, and I probably have about two years left uh, on my, my, in my degree. And it's because of this academia or nothing approach that we, we get. When you're in, when you're in school, you're, it's all academia, and that's all people talk about. But the fact is, is that you're not going to be nearly as marketable if you don't have the skills that you want for where you're going. And to your point, the first thing you need is figure out where you want to go. And, and if you want to be in private sector, if you want to do private research, if you want to, like you said, do science writing, it's just not going to fall in your lap. You got to, you have to really bolster your skills in that section. And that's, it's hard for graduate students to think about because we're so mired down in the actual getting of our degree that we forget that we, you need to be planning way out for these things. Yeah. It's good to get out of the lab once in a while and, you know, find seminars that you can go to. And, and sometimes I know like, like the business school at Harvard offers a course for scientists. So it's like a, a few week course that I know people have done, especially if they're thinking of, they want to go into the business side of things or into consulting. So look for those opportunities to gain some of these other skills. Yes. Get broaden your horizons, get out of the little shell we all live in. I mean, you were a graduate student, you know how it is though. You just, uh, you're so focused on getting a paper out. You're so focused on your classes. You're so focused on your lab that you you you're in this tiny little universe. And uh, now is the time to find your own parallel universe, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Doctor uh, Kuchenberg, I really really appreciate you you coming onto the show, and uh, and and I, I we eagerly await your guys' findings, and we will make sure to send um, send everyone over to futureofresearch.org to find those when they come out. All right. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Thanks. Take care. Well, great interview, huh? Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just one of these things that's it's so um, it's really in a unique position to be a graduate student and a postdoc trying to figure out where you're going next. You just assume that you're getting this great high degree and that the world is going the world will be your oyster. The doors will fly open and everyone's going to be begging for to give you money and a job and all this stuff, but it's really not the case. And she brought up some awesome points about kind of thinking about where you need to be. And just the idea that, that she's taking such a proactive approach to change the system that, you know, rather than just sitting on the sidelines being like, well, geez, I hope things get better. They're like, no, let's fix this while we can. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think I, I loved her advice at the end there to really think about what career path you want to take before you get so far down the road that you're sort of pushed out whatever direction things are going. Yeah, well, that's kind of the position I was in, which is, you know, about halfway through graduate school, probably last year, I started thinking, I'm like, geez, I've got all these great scientists I know are having such a hard time. They're, they're professionals, they're professors, they're postdocs, having a very hard time getting grants, having a very hard time getting funding for anything. And they're killing themselves. And I'm like, 
I need to really make sure this is what I want to do. And if it is, to her point, you know, go full force with it. But there are lots of other options out there for you uh, after you get your degree. But if you don't plan for it now, if you don't train for it now, you're not going to have the skill set. You know, you think you're getting your PhD is enough, but it's not. You need these other skills depending on what you want to do. And now's the time, you know, carpe scientum. Right, exactly. And and I think and I know it's a struggle because I, I've I met a lot of people in undergrad who are just so smart and so ambitious and talented. It just seems like the natural course is to either go medical school or become a PhD doctor. Um, but it's not necessarily the, the path for everyone. So, you know, you use your intelligence and use your talents to move down the career path that's gonna suit your, your other skills and your personality really well. Yeah, it's just not worth it if you're not ultimately happy. I I see tons of research scientists who seem miserable, but they're like, I've got no other option. I've been doing this forever. What else am I going to do? You know, so get smart yeah. now. Well, cool. Um, shoot, I had a couple other stories we were going to talk about, but uh, naturally we run out of time. Man, I, wa- I want to talk about how plants make their own sunscreen. I thought that would be awesome, but that will have to wait. It's a little teaser for next week. And also, the government's stopped funding of gain-of-function research on certain viruses and stuff, and uh, which means that uh, we can't create our super viruses anymore. And... Uh, that's a super cool topic as well, but it will have to wait for another day. Yep, I will eagerly await hearing about that next week. Those are very cool topics. Indeed. Um, can you tell people how to find Well, I'm going to go eat some. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I'm gonna, about to head out for barbecue. But for all you listeners who want to enjoy barbecue, definitely go on our Facebook, uh, Beta Sandwich, and find us on Twitter, uh, at Beta Sandwich. Uh, is it at Beta Sandwich or at Beta Sandwich? There we go. And to those of you who are listening to this at 4 p.m. and you think that it's a perfectly logical thing that Carolina is going out to get barbecue now, I can assure you it's not. It's uh, 8 a.m. here. I guess it's 10 a.m. where you are, but you were... Your friends are have already been in line since what about seven a.m. to get barbecue? Yes, lucky, lucky me. I'm here comfortably cozied up in bed, recording a science podcast while they're out in the cold, <laughs> already giving them my order for barbecue. <laughs> I, I was telling Carolina, I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're on vacation. You don't have to call. You know, we really appreciate it and blah blah blah. She's like, don't worry about it. She's like, they're all outside in the cold waiting for barbecue at seven a.m. I could just get a hangout for another hour or two. It's uh, yeah, the perfect excuse. Yep, so next week, by the, when I'm on the podcast, I'll be a changed woman. I will have experienced transcendent brisket. Brisket. Yeah, can awesome. you vacuum pack some and drop it in the mail for me? <laughs> I don't know that I'll leave a single shred for you. <laughs> okay. All right, see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.